There is a story of the Buddha standing at the banks of the Ganges River with the Sangha. And he points to the sand along the bank and says to the Sangha, how many grains of sand are lying here along the bank? And the Sangha looks a little perplexed and says, uncountable. Lord, they called him Lord, uncountable Lord, innumerable. And then the Buddha bends down and picks, pinches a little bit of sand and puts it on his nail. And he says, that's, that's how few beings become human beings. When we look at all the grains of the sand on the Ganges, they represent all sentient beings, that it is, it is um, uncountable the number of different life forms, amoebas and plant uh, forms and birds and just, and in the Buddhist cosmology there are even other realms. And so few are actually born as human beings. And then, I don't know if you've noticed that there's a statue of the Buddha, uh, or sometimes, or pictures of the Buddha holding a flower. And um, he's sort of holding this flower and inviting us to take the flower of our own nature. He's saying, being born a human being is extraordinarily precious and quite rare. And Here, now that you are a human being, take this flower, the flower of your Buddha nature. Come to see your true beauty as beautiful as this flower is. Shantideva, the 8th century Mahayana Indian saint and author of The Way of the Bodhisattva wrote, These human leisures, opportunities, and faculties are very rare to obtain and easily lost. If one squanders the chance to fulfill the aim of human life, how will such an opportunity arise again? We have this blessing, each one of us here, of hearing the teachings. Many of our sisters and brothers are fighting in the war in Iraq. There are some of our sisters and brothers who are struggling to feed themselves in the Sudan. There are some living in refugee camps. There are some who are in hiding in Nigeria because the military is targeting the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered community in Nigeria. And I think of our human family kind of in a relay race. And we here um, are running and they are passing the baton to us and saying, given my conditions right now, I can't practice, but I'm handing you the baton so that you can practice. 
in a way that's acknowledging the blessing that we have here today. The, this incredible space, the hills, coming, having the time to come to a retreat. So we are being passed the baton and are the different teachers in all our lineages also are handing the baton and saying, here, for different karmic reasons, and the Buddha said that was actually impossible to, to sort of tease out all the karma, but for different reasons, we each here have been handed the baton of practice. And the four contemplations that are offered at the beginning of a retreat in the Mahayana tradition um, consist of this contemplation first, the contemplation of the preciousness of human birth and of coming to the Dharma. Someone uh, left me a note and asked me to talk about um, how I came to renunci- uh, to uh, decide to renounce and um, ordain. And really, it is very close to the theme of, as I have continued to practice, um, becoming uh, very vulnerable to, um, to life. There was someone in our group today, in our sharing group, who said, I, I, I feel like I'm going to cry all the time. And it's this uh, opening of our being so that we become naked. And as we become naked and more vulnerable, we, we feel this calling, not, not just, it doesn't feel just like an individual calling anymore, but the calling of of everyone handing the baton, saying, here, the, the whales who are dying, um, the, the uh, prisoners in prison who um, are not given their rights. Or I, I, I read the newspaper and I feel each of the stories that I read are in some way or another handing me the baton, saying, I can't do it because for whatever karmic reasons, I don't have the resources, or as we talked about in our question and answer session, I don't have the awareness um, that, that would lead me to hear a liberation teaching, not just the Dharma, but any liberation teaching. Here, you take the baton. So really, I... <laughs> Not that we always want to take the baton, because we don't. It's like, me? Why me? I don't want to do it. It, um, it reminds me of um, a panel that I was on recently in a woman in Buddhism conference, and um, I was speaking as a white woman. And um, um, in the process of talking, I felt um, sort of publicly shamed by one of the panelists, and afterwards, I said to um, I said to a friend, "Well, you know, I'm not I'm not taking this baton up again. Forget it. You know, I don't like it. It's too hard." Um, <laughs> and yet, for whatever reason, there's the baton being um, dangled in front 
in front of each one of us saying, here you are. So um, as we come on retreat, we're invited at different points in our time together to just contemplate the preciousness of the gift of being on this retreat, the preciousness of hearing a liberation teachings, and the preciousness of being alive as a human being. The second contemplation is the contemplation of impermanence, and this is what the Buddha says. The universe and its inhabitants are as ephemeral as the clouds in the sky. Beings being born and dying are like a spectacular dance and drama show. The duration of our lives is like a flash of lightning or a firefly's brief twinkle. Everything passes like the flowing waters of a steep waterfall. Nagarjuna says, Life is so fragile, no more than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How astonishing to think that after an out-breath, we think there will be an in-breath or that we will awaken after a night's sleep. It's said that life is a one-way road which moves towards the certainty of our death. The Buddhist scriptures say, just as an arrow skillfully shot by an archer quickly reaches its target, so do our human lives. The problem might not be with our death, but with our ideas of life. Sherlock Holmes used to say that if the clue did not fit the theory, throw away the theory, not the fact. But most of us do the opposite. We make every attempt to discard the fact of our death. Many of us have been close to death. I, I was um, really sick as a kid. I had polio and um, really sort of felt in a visceral way that I was dying. And then um, probably six years ago, um, I was really sick and they thought, maybe it was longer than six years ago, seven or eight, they thought I had pancreatic cancer. And I sort of faced more directly my dying. And then the, um, the wonder of wonders 
is that delusion just covers it up again. I don't know for any of you who've noticed how when you face death, there's this kind of incredible opening that happens. And then when things sort of are okay again, it's just like everything gets covered over. It's a remarkable capacity of our mind to forget. But the reality is that each one of us is going to die. We are going to die. And the other reality is that we don't know when we're going to die. Um, There's a a, a, a very wonderful Sangha sister here, Cynthia, um, who used to live in um, the same town as I did. And we were close to a woman, Karen, who died this fall who was part of our sangha. And she um, got diagnosed, um, I think, just four months, four four months before, or five months um, before she died of, um, of cancer. That's just one story I know of many that each one of us could tell in this room of friends who have died unexpectedly of um, cancer, of friends who've died expectedly of AIDS, of friends who have died from accidents, car accidents. Um, Our death is certain and we don't know when we're going to die. The incredible blessing of contemplating our death is that it brings an immediacy to our lives and a deep desire to open our hearts to the moment. I remember the story of Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan in his training of Carlos says, live your life as though death were at your shoulder. Live your life as though death were hanging around all the time. The, um, the, the blessing of thinking of our death is that it actually brings us close to our beauty and that flower that the Buddha is holding out to us, that, that invitation to say, if I'm alive, which we are at the moment, why am I alive? What is it that I really want to do with my life? What, what does that pattern look like that is being presented from the universe to me? And and how do I want to run with it? So it said that um, uh, the second contemplation um, as we sit is the contemplation of death and also of um, of just the changing nature of our experiences. We already have sat through a whole day of varying degrees of pleasure and pain. And isn't it amazing how quickly it changes? I mean, just like that, from one to the other, to the other, to the other. Just that, that, that um, uncontainable flow of changing experiences of pleasant and unpleasant or neutral. And the, this contemplation helps us to... Uh, begin to really honor 
and respect this flow as an integral part of life that actually cannot be managed by our minds. It is unmanageable. And that, you know, it's, it's, it's like um, stepping up to the program and saying, I, what, what is it that you say? I, I'm uh, out of control? No. no what? Oh, oh, right. My life has become, my life has become unmanageable. Well, our lives are unmanageable. That's the truth. You know, each one of us is confronted with the unmanageable flow of pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain. And as we come to open to the truth of our life, we are confronted with this reality that it is changing all the time. Pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain. Um, we, we are also confronted with gain and loss. Um, oh, wait, wait. Before I go there, I, I forgot I wanted to tell the uh, story of, of, um, of pleasure and pain, which is the story of, a, I can't remember which Rinpoche, um, a very famous Tibetan Rinpoche and Lama, managed to escape the Chinese prison camps and climbed and, and trekked over the Himalayas and got to India. Calcutta, and was um, on the streets begging, having um, some difficulty finding enough food to eat. Um, his robes were really tattered, and um, he, ha- you know, hadn't had a bath for a very long time. He 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 was begging with the beggars, and um, I have. If any of you have been to India, um, then um, you know the unpleasantness of that situation. Probably also with incredible pollution, which happens in all the big Indian cities. So someone saw him and recognized him, some American students, and and flew him to America, flew him first class because they recognized him as this incredible Rinpoche and built uh, this wonderful meditation center for him, you know, with the big throne, you know, and orange and, and the colors of the Tibetan lineage. So, so there he was sitting on his throne. And someone, some student said to him, well, uh, um, uh, so are you... Do you feel happy and relieved now? You know that you um, have been found, and that now you are in these really pleasant circumstances. And the Rinpoche said, um, uh, "No preference. <laughs> roads, begging on the roads of Calcutta, sitting in the luxury of America. No preference." So I know some of you know there is a great poem. Um, by the third Zen patriarch, and it starts, it's a beautiful expression of the awakened mind, and it starts with just that line, that someone who is peaceful and someone who is awakened has no preference. That is just like dynamite, isn't it? (laughs) It's such a powerful teaching. It's explosive to begin to invite ourselves to live our lives without preference. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy the blessings when we have them, but that we aren't caught in that that addictive struggle to manipulate 
our experiences so that somehow we can collect the experiences of pleasantness in the delusion of thinking that that won't change, in the delusion of thinking that that will make us happy. Actually, the process of trying to collect pleasant experiences, and we do it all the time. I just watched someone in our group, we had such a great group, someone in our group talked about um, how they had noticed a new tray of tofu coming onto the table and how they found themselves rushing to eat the, to- the one tofu they had on their plate so that they could get more tofu. And um, isn't that familiar? I watch myself rushing, you know, just a slight movement of my whole body towards my cup of English breakfast tea in the morning. You know, it's just that, 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 deeply ingrained habit of, of creating hierarchy, and we talked about it in the question and answer session, and we create a hierarchy out of all our experiences. And then when that, the ones that are on the top of the hierarchy um, don't manifest because conditions change, where in my teacher used to say, we're in deep doo-doo. <laughs> so as we enter into this retreat, we're asked to just notice it because for sure it's going to come up and it's going to come up a lot. It's going to come up actually moment after moment after moment. That just inclination of the mind towards wanting one experience more than another. And we are invited to the understanding that this vision, this flower the Buddha is offering us is um, one that understands when we renounce our preferences and all experiences are just as important as each other, we actually come to a deep peace and ease and the ending of suffering. So it's good news and bad. (laughs) Good news that suffering can be ended and um, bad it's difficult. It's difficult in an ongoing way to practice that renunciation. But good. Possible. So um, the eight vicissitudes that change in our life, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, and um, those of you who um, have been to other retreats have heard the story of my car, my Toyota Tercel. I've driven my um, 1988 Toyota Tercel for many, many, many years. When my partner and I separated, she got the Camry. So I continued to have the Toyota Tercel. Well, finally it rusted. It rusted away and I bought a second-hand 2000 Camry. Well, I felt like royalty driving my Camry compared to my Toyota Tercel. It was so smooth and it was so great. So here was my, um, here was my gain. I had gone up in the world and I'm driving my royal blue Camry. And then not long ago, I was parking in a, t- a town next to mine, Amherst, and went out to dinner with a friend and came back. And there were all these police cars down the road a little bit. And I walked towards my car and the police cars were around my car because someone had smashed into my car. It was a hit and run. 
<laughs> so gain and loss. So <laughs> that is how it is, gain and loss. We, some of us get great jobs and then lose them, and not to mention the succession of our partners and how many partners we've gained and lost. <laughs> so gain and loss. The changes, the changes of gain and loss, and just taking that perspective, again, just with our meditation practice, that place where we feel like we've really gained the right breath. And then how it goes, the next moment, gain and loss, the laws of the universe, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame. Um, recently I got a letter from someone in Sri Lanka saying, oh, my friend read your book and I'd love it and can you please send me your book? And I'm like, wow, you know, I've been getting letters from um, Argentina and there's Sri Lanka, they want to, they want to read my book. And then um, I talked to Toinette, who was the editor of this book, and said, well, I'm in the middle of writing another book, are you interested in publishing it? And she said, oh, no, you didn't sell enough. Books, I'm not. So, <laughs> praise and blame. You know, <laughs> we get it all the time. We give it to ourselves all the time. We receive it all the time. The changes, praise and blame. And then fame and distribute. We probably all have stories of that. Someone just asked me if they could make a video of me. Um, that's the fame part. I couldn't quite come up with the disrepute part. Um, but I just heard a story from um, Larry about the nuns in Burma, at, or the women in Burma, and that um, that's probably close to disrepute because they're so unacknowledged, you know, and so invisible in the, um, the way uh, resources are distributed and energy given to practitioners. So... I'm sure to face that at least when I ordain and go to Burma. So, just acknowledging the, these changes in our lives and um, how everything, all our accumulations disperse as a way to begin to renounce our preferences and our attachments. Um, I end with a, um, the um, acknowledging the difficulty of this as um, I look at my bookcases in my living room in the understanding that I'm going to let go of my home and let go of everything in my home. Um, I think about giving my books away. And I am faced with my attachment to my books and that I don't want to give them away. And I watch my resistance. And I've been sort of saying, okay, well, I can give this one. You know, it's a murder mystery paperback. And okay, I can give this one. <laughs> and how difficult it is, you know, to let go. And so in saying what I'm saying... I want to acknowledge that often as we contemplate these realities of life, the first thing that we hit is our resistance. 
and just to acknowledge, oh, that is what I'm hitting. I'm hitting my resistance. And perhaps for you, as you're hearing these words, it's like, I wish Irina would shut up. I didn't come to this retreat to hear about this, you know. It's it's uncomfortable. So um, as I faced my resistance and acknowledged, oh, this is what's up for me, what I felt underneath was this fear. Like, well, if I let go of the the sorts of ways I've created what's known in my world. These are my books. My books give me some kind of identity. Then I feel like all the ground underneath my feet is crumbling and that there's nothing to stand on anymore. And that is scary. And as I contemplated that, I also felt in that place, that nakedness and vulnerability that comes when we let go of the armor, whatever our armor is. It might be books for me or clothes or our jobs or our car. And how as we let those places go and we touch that nakedness or that vulnerability, there's love again. And that that resource, that that plucking of the flower and saying, oh, I forgot, I forgot that where the true joy is, is actually in allowing that ground to crumble underneath my feet. So um, the contemplation of the blessings of being a human being and coming to the Dharma. The, do you, Cynthia, do you want to just not come? Because she probably wouldn't want to sleep through the whole Dharma talk. Um, and <laughs> at the contemplation of impermanence, the changing conditions of our life, our death. And then um, the contemplation of karma. Uh, i just say a little bit about karma. Um, The law of karma follows us like a shadow follows the body. Virtue and non-virtuous words, thoughts and deeds procreate in kind. When we die, we leave everything behind except our karma. This karmic conditioning propels us forward according to what we have set in motion through our actions, words and deeds. So, um, that's... um, The law of karma is one of the most powerful teachings of empowerment in in this in the Buddha's teachings, because what it says is that every time we make an effort to be mindful or to be present, we are planting that seed and that energy in our life, and that nothing gets lost. No effort you've made gets lost. It will all manifest, if not in the next moment, in future lives. And that is such a powerful teaching because no matter where we are and what experience we're having, at any point we can fall back on our understanding of karma and say, I'm feeling lost right now, 
but may I be able to hold this with kindness. And that thought sows the seeds of kindness in our future. And so often I think, (laughs) you know, I think, well, I, I don't know about the present circumstances in my life now, but I know I am really creating a great future for myself because I have made so many intentions of that nature of just dedicating over and over again. I don't know where I am now or I'm totally lost or I'm furious, but may I be able to hold this with kindness in the future? It is, it is, it is, it is so simple that capacity we have to transform our lives just that and the the reason that we practice so much in and make so much effort is to remember that's what um uh, Larry was saying this morning about mindfulness that mindfulness is about remembering and so the thing is we forget that we can do that We forget that we have this unlimited potential to call forth the beautiful qualities of mind to transform our life. So karma is really that law that says that we have this capacity to let go of all that's unskillful and brings us suffering by planting the qualities that create the conditions for our liberation. So just to say, um, for those of you who are new, and to spell it out, the qualities that bring us suffering when we identify with them are anger, delusion, ignorance, shamelessness, that means not being scared to hurt ourselves or others, uh, envy, jealousy, um, uh, mm, laziness, Anxiety, fear. Um, have I left any big one out? Craving, greed. Thank you. Craving, greed, aversion. So you get the idea. <laughs> and the beautiful qualities: compassion, joy, mindfulness, concentration, equanimity, investigation, um, calm. Um, joy. Joy, generosity. generosity. Yeah. Any other big ones? Loving kindness, gratitude, humor. humor. Yes. Patience. Patience. Yes. Yes. Renunciation. <laughs> so, uh, so we could say that karma is the dynamic of. Um, It is the hand that plants the seed in the soil of our being. And it's our job to be careful what seed gets planted. Is it one of the unskillful qualities of mind or the skillful ones? I love karma. So, um, so, uh, the... Third contemplation is a contemplation of karma and understanding the the goodness that we're that we're planting here by retreating together. It's big. It's powerful. It's wonderful. And the last one is imperfection. And I um, to contemplate imperfection. And I wanted to read this article. Um, 
of uh, <laughs> what the what happens when um, we face the imperfections. So. It's that time of year when family and shopaholic friends feel obliged to ask, ask, before I get you another cartoon animal potholder or bag of fruitcake-flavored jelly beans, what do you really want for the holidays? Usually I say you don't have to get me anything. The truth is I do want something from my fellow gift exchangers. I want them to love and appreciate me as much as I love and appreciate them. But after almost 50 years of accumulating, categorizing, and storing stuff in every spare closet, drawer, and attic crawl space, I'd prefer that whatever they get me doesn't require wrapping paper, styrofoam peanuts, polyethylene packaging, or detailed assembly instructions. So people, here's what I really want. I want my kids to take out the garbage without being asked. I want the neighbor's yapping dog to finally get his dinner and shut up for the night. I'm feeling lucky. I want to do a Google search and find what I'm looking for at the top of the list. I want peace and quiet. I want my kids to stop leaving rap music in my car CD player to blast out at me every time I start the car in the morning. I want the cell phones of all the cell phonies to self-destruct when I'm trying to have a nice restaurant lunch. I want all the TVs tuned to Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or CNN, or anything that some mid-level corporate manager has picked to create the perfect ambience for waiting rooms to short-circuit so I can concentrate on my book or my own thoughts. As an artist, I want my painting to hang in the museum next to the Van Gogh instead of in the basement next to the clothes dryer. I want fruit without those miserable little stickers and CDs that you can open without the help from a magician. I want to stop wasting time standing in line, sitting on line, or untangling fishing line. I want people to replace the empty toilet paper roll before I sit down so I'm not forced to tear off pieces of columnists from newspapers I don't agree with. And what was it that the founding fathers used to snort? A good sneeze is a great thing. It completely clears your head and leaves a vacant space that all sorts of new thoughts and ideas can move into. I want to know. I want to know secrets so I can tell them to all the other people who want to know secrets. I want to know answers. I'd even settle for knowing a few of the right answers. I want to be the star of the show. I want to sign autographs and get the red carpet treatment and the opportunity to thank my mom on an internationally broadcast award ceremony. But what I really want to do is direct. I want a good haircut. I want good hair. Hell, at this point in my life, any kind of hair would be wonderful. I want everyone to acknowledge that I could have become a very successful psychiatrist because I understand how to deal with crazy people. I know lots of them. There are already popular sports that involve watching people driving in circles and running in circles. I want someone to create a sport that would be perfectly suited to my talent for pacing back and forth worrying. Then I'd like to sign a multi-year guaranteed contract along with a shoe and carpeting endorsement deal. 
Finally, I want a good night's sleep where the phone doesn't ring, the kids don't scream, the garbage truck doesn't come, and I can soar like a bird, snore to my heart's content. So um, I loved all those um, lists because it's so clear that it's impossible um, to meet the needs that we have um, or the, the wants that we have. The Buddha says that our world is imperfect and that our wanting is just not going to be met all the time. Whatever those wants are, garbage trucks not arriving early in the morning, CDs not screaming out at us, Christmas presents that we don't want, um, just, just acknowledging you know, acknowledging the fact that sometimes we come into the meditation hall and we're determined to be concentrated and they're either digging um, and hacking away at the garden out there or um, someone's snoring or someone's in deep samadhi and breathing as though they were a roaring truck. And that, <laughs> that is how it is, isn't it? That is how it is. It's imperfect. It just is imperfect. So, um, uh, so we are um, we are um, invited to really contemplate um, and allow the imperfection. So, um, just to um, acknowledge that I did get my Camry fixed. I paid the deductible because it was a hit and run, and got it fixed. And um, I live with a wonderful roommate. And um, she was in a rush just a few days ago and backed into my car. <laughs> it truly is imperfect. I have deeply appreciated the invitation the Buddha has extended to us in contemplating these four contemplations. Because they actually really do make a difference in how we hold our lives, in how we hold our relationships, in how we hold our bodies, in how we hold our meditation practice, and in how we hold the world and how we hold the politics of the world. These four contemplations are the grounds in which our heart opens, and they are reminders of our capacity to transform our lives. I'll end with this um, wonderful poem by Judith Hill, Calling Wage Peace. Wage peace with your breath. Breathe in firemen and rubble. Breathe out buildings and flocks of red-winged blackbirds. Breathe in terrorists and breathe out sleeping children and freshly mown fields. Breathe in confusion and breathe out maple trees. Breathe in the fallen and breathe out lifelong friendships intact. Wage peace with your listening Hearing sirens, pray loud. Remember your tools, flower seeds, clothes, pins, clean rivers. 
make soup, play music, learn the word for thank you in three languages, learn to knit and make a hat, think of chaos as dancing raspberries, imagine grief as the out-breath of beauty or the gesture of fish, swim for the other side, wage peace. Never has the world seemed so fresh and precious. Have a cup of tea and rejoice. Act as if armistice has already arrived. Don't wait another minute. Celebrate today. So may we celebrate our beautiful capacity to grab hold of the baton and to acknowledge our capacity to take that flower and nurture it into an awakened mind. Thank you. So let's just sit for a moment. for a moment how it would be to imagine ourselves renouncing all preference, acknowledging the magnificence of our human lives by disarming our hearts of attachment greed, and aversion. Standing naked and vulnerable in a heart so filled with love that it holds all the imperfections of our life. This, the Buddha said, is our possibility. We have this capacity to open in this way.
This talk was given by Arena Weissman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 20, 2005. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.